Hey y'all, Seth Harwood here, dropping episode 13, as much protein as an egg. Some more liquor. It's your boy Seth Harwood bringing you as much protein as an egg back in effect. SethHarwood.com, RightWithSeth.com, and of course, Patreon.com slash Seth Harwood. I'd love to hear from you. That's right. I'm here to give you episode 13, chapters 25 and 26 together from the Wayback Machine, going back and putting them together for you here on November 16th. Hope you dig it. Hope you love it. Thank you again to Carlos for recording these. Much love. Appreciate you. Hope you're doing well. Chapter 25 A very long three days later, to Kellogg, on account of hangovers combined with nerves about hearing back from the great writer, Bainbridge McGee replied by email to say when Kellogg should come down to the desert. He said Kellogg should come down in two weeks, the first week in March, which was perfect because this coincided exactly with the spring break of the Waldorf School. Kellogg would have plenty of time to drive down and arrive on Monday or Tuesday, just like McGee asked. Also, because Emily Plinko planned to still be unemployed then, she was definitely going to enjoy the dole. She planned to come along on the trip as well. They would make their first road trip and couples vacation out of it. And boy, was that a mistake. Just a friendly bit of advice. Never take a woman you love on a road trip to visit a half-crazy famous living writer. Oh, no. But that understanding would come to Kellogg in due time. This is why it took McGee three days to get back to Kellogg. He had gone through another long-haul binge of writing, finished up the falling people, and then promptly gone on his long-awaited bender. This time, when he went out on it, he took along Big Win. Big Win was a man who could definitely use a bender. So they drove to Las Vegas in Big Win's Mercedes-Benz E-Class sedan. It was very roomy and comfortable inside. Even the cup holders were covered in leather. Big Win and McGee drank up everything they could in Las Vegas and spent a lot of money. They went to three strip clubs and one very fancy dance club where they sprang for special bottle service so they could have their own personal waitress, who was beautiful, and their own personal leather couch right next to the dance floor. They spent thousands of dollars in this manner so they could sit on the couch, just like at home, and watch people dancing. Most of the dancers were young, attractive women wearing revealing clothing. This alone made it worth their money. Along about 1 a.m., I showed up to this dance club with a group of guys I was with for a bachelor party. This was the one time I went to Vegas and properly partied. Good for me. I was on a bender of my own. 
This part is true. I was there on that very same couch with them. I had snuck into their private space, and they didn't care. I watched McGee and Big Wind dancing on the couch with a couple of beautiful women. I stood up to dance on the couch with them. I danced. My friend, who was going to be married in a month, danced too. After a time, Big Wind took his shoes off. Why he did this, I have no idea. I think he felt bad about marking up somebody's leather couch. This wasn't a problem. Dancing in shoes was one of the least bad things that had happened on that couch. A little later, Big Wind fell off the couch, very similarly to how Emily Plinko did in her apartment on Friday night. This was 27 hours later. The only differences were these. Big's couch was leather and Emily Plinko's was a nice beige cotton-something blend. Instead of falling sideways onto a lover's lap or onto McGee or myself, even the beautiful women, Big Wind fell backward onto the hard ground. He fell because the leather of the couch was very slippery with vodka. When his head collided with the hard floor, it was nothing like what happened to Tony Vitelli. I mean, he really bonked it. I could hear the bonk it made. But he was very drunk and thought it was mostly just funny. So did I. He didn't bleed or anything, so there you go. But before all of that, McGee sat and wrote. Here's what he wrote for an ending to The Falling People. He showed Billy all the beauty and humanity in the people who were falling from the South Tower. These were the falling people of the book's title. They each held a humanity that was really quite beautiful. The combination of all their humanities was a stunning representation of that day, September 11th, and what makes good, upstanding, innocent Americans such fine people. But McGee knew that Artemis Kellogg, Aldo Calcagno, and the rest of the members of the committee would have to be the first judges of that. He knew what he had done, but the humanity would be in the eye of the beholder, as they say. People would judge his work as they would judge Vonnegut. And so on. After that, his readers would judge the beauty and the humanity of his words. They would have to decide if he had written something they would call a masterpiece or another great American novel. Either one of those was fine with McGee. It would be great, he thought. Or the book could be a stinker. But McGee's good chemicals wouldn't let him believe that. As we know from Vonnegut's own occasional evaluations of his books and the C grade he gave Breakfast of Champions, negative thoughts by a writer actually had no bearing on whether that book was good or not. McGee's chemicals and confidence helped him believe this book was both a masterpiece and a great American novel. The Falling People wasn't much of a science fiction novel. It was something of a real departure for McGee from his usual fare. He trusted his readers because he loved them and they loved him, but this might be a bit of a surprise. Still, they were ready to see the humanity and to celebrate the 69th anniversary of the Dresden firebombing in this way. He knew it. Reviewers could go to hell. This is true. In the year of the writing of this novel, not only do authors not get to go out on tour anymore or have lots of awesome groupie sex, but there are also very few places that review books anymore. Other than reader reviews on Amazon.com, which do matter, thank you very much, by the way, the newspapers hardly had readers or review pages anymore. So McGee couldn't have cared less what any potential reviewer might say about whether his book was literary or wasn't. Reviewers could go to hell. They could fuck themselves. But the readers, 
these people he loved. After writing his prolonged and final scene about Billy at the base of the South Tower, and then Billy stumbling around Lower Manhattan for ten minutes with bits of glass stuck in his face, yes, McGee did steal this idea from Don DeLillo, McGee wrote a final denouement of Billy traveling in time to Tralfalmador and having a final lovely sex scene with Montana Wildhack. That was a way for a book to end. But really, McGee knew there were only two ways for a book like The Falling People to end. The one he chose was this. A small bird, actually a parakeet that was the pet of an accounting and travel agency housed in the South Tower of the World Trade Center on the 97th floor, flew away from the skyscraper after its window broke at 9.43 on September 11th. This parakeet could not believe how high up it was. It had never dreamed of reaching a height this great, even being a bird. For a few moments, the parakeet became paralyzed with fear. It fell twelve stores in this moment, spinning and bird cartwheeling through the air. Then it spread its little wings to fly. It flew away from the great smoking tower. The bird knew bad things were underway, and it did its best to get as far away from the sight of these bad things as possible. Its little heart was beating triple time, which is actually seventeen times the rate of a normal human heart. Being such small creatures, birds have very fast-beating hearts to begin with, and so on. Due to its already great height, the intense beating of its little heart and a massive shot of adrenaline, for such a small bird, the parakeet managed to fly all the way over Battery Park and the Hudson River to Liberty Island, where it finally descended and came to rest on a tree. There it took one short look at a pigeon sitting next to it, uttered one final tweet, and then died from a massive heart attack for a bird. So it goes. The pigeon had been watching the smoke and buildings collapsing across the Hudson all morning from its comfortable perch on a tree at Liberty Island, its little heart was just fine. The pigeon looked at the dead parakeet next to it. The parakeet had gotten tangled in a cluster of leaves and didn't fall very far upon its death, and asked it something that no pigeon had ever said before. This was what the pigeon asked. Pooty wee? I'm still alive. Chapter 26 let us jump forward exactly two weeks to a time when Artemis Kellogg and Emily Plinko have almost reached the home of Bainbridge McGee. They were in the desert. They had spent the night, Sunday night, at Silverwood Lake near San Bernardino, camping out in a tent Kellogg bought at REI. They were very intrepid to do this, on account of the fact that they were in a desert. Even being this close to a lake didn't improve things much. This was desert. High or low, it didn't matter. Desert just wasn't much fun. It was too hot, is why. Desert was desert. Know how you can remember the difference between spelling desert and dessert? Everyone wants some more dessert. No one wants more desert. There you go. Bainbridge McGee would have never camped out in the desert. He liked living next to his golf course in the climate-controlled environs of his gated community. McGee had spent the last two weeks since his bender with Big Win revising The Falling People. Even if McGee was famous and loved by his readers, he still believed in the importance of revision. It was another way to get his stars out, in Salinger terms, even if it was much less fun, appealing, and soul-enriching than writing new stuff. 
Thick books still sold better and got better reviews than better, shorter ones, but McGee had a bad chemical in his brain that made him think revision was important to the quality of a book. He thought quality still mattered. Even though he didn't care about reviewers, other than those dear souls who were his readers on Amazon.com's Kindle family of fine devices, he revised his work. Many meager sentences, word groupings, and ideas died as a result of this belief. So it goes. McGee believed that old maxim about killing his darlings. After Las Vegas, it took him three days of staring at his computer screen for McGee to get over his bender and for his brain to start working again. The main ingredient of McGee's bender, which was alcohol in the form of vodka, had the opposite effect from coffee. It numbed McGee's brain and slowed down his brain waves to a crawl. It made very little waves peter through his brain at a slow rate. It was like his mind was quiet and dumb. In truth, many people liked the state of quiet-brained existence and the alcohol that produced it. They drank specifically to quiet their brains, killing lots of brain cells in the process. So it goes. They weren't robots or machines, either. They were people. But they were prone to the bad chemicals in their brains that made them think bad things or want to act crazy from time to time. They didn't like listening to voices made by these bad chemicals, for which you can hardly blame them. They didn't like pills, either. Instead, they liked alcohol. Alcohol came in many forms and was sold freely to anyone over the age of 21 in America. If you were under the age of 21, you had to steal your alcohol or pay someone older to buy it for you. This didn't stop anyone. Someone was always willing to buy for $20 or less. McGee waited those three days staring at his computer screen, and then his brain started working again. Luckily. He spent afternoons golfing with Big Win and the others, wearing a cap to keep the sun rays from his pickled, dehydrated brain cover, his head. He shot worse than his usual, missed more putts, and hit shorter drives, but didn't mind. He spent most of his time out on the course listening for a breeze, watching the flutter of thick palm branches, and thinking about his plan for the committee. Random thoughts bounced around in his head about the falling people, but he knew he wouldn't remember them or be able to write them down. So it goes. He was taking it easy, something he thought he deserved. That was the thing about a bender. You took it to celebrate something good, which was a great break in itself, but then the effects of the bender forced you on a longer break away from your normal creative brain. And so on. Big Win, on the other hand, played beautifully on these days. Something about hitting his vodka-addled head on the floor of the dance club had woken him up to new possibilities in the world, new ways to putt and see the greens, new ways to make love to his wife, and a certain pride in his with-dominated penis that allowed him to start spending time in the locker room naked, airing it out. And no one at the club said anything to him about the fact that his penis resembled a tuna can. Sure, they talked about him behind his back, sheepishly admitting to noticing his penis and its odd dimensions at first, then having prolonged conversations and analytical discussions about it, even wondering aloud how he made love to his wife, but they didn't say anything to him. Such was the maturity of grown men and their kindness toward one of their own. In their Ford Taurus. Not so great, but not so bad, either. And what did you really expect on a teacher's salary? Artemis Kellogg and Emily Plinko were arguing on the interstate. They had been arguing since they woke up and made bad coffee over a Coleman stove, 
packed the dust-covered tent into the trunk of the car and started driving. Kellogg was sick of driving, cranky and irritable all at the same time. Here's what worried him, that Emily Plinko would become enamored of the famous writer and want to leave him for Bainbridge McGee and his lovely golf-offering gated community. Also, his body felt simply awful from sleeping on the ground in too many hours in the poorly designed seat of his Taurus. In truth, he had nothing to worry about regarding Emily Plinko. The seat of his Taurus was another story. You have nothing to worry about, she told him. They had just passed a giant Costco that called to them from the side of the highway. Next to it was a super Walmart. Come visit us, these stores both called out. Take advantage of our low prices. Kellogg ground his teeth. Here in the land of the strip mall and the big box store, he became especially mournful of his father and the fact that a Costco had driven him to his death. So it goes. I just need a few minutes of silence, Kellogg said. He turned off the radio. Hootie and the Blowfish had been crooning a sweet melody when he did. 3.7 miles later, he whispered the names of his three favorite living authors. McGee's name was one of these. These are the three people I'd most like to meet on this earth, he said. And I'm about to meet one of them. Not Brad Pitt? What? I'd probably go for Barack Obama. No, writers, literature. Even after reading the work of Kilgore Trout, Emily Plinko still thought the novel was likely dead. She had no idea how a Kindle could make someone want to read, much less buy a book. She was happy that Kellogg wanted to focus on a screenplay, that he wanted to work in the movies. If she knew any good writers of screenplays, she would have mentioned them by name to Kellogg right then, but she didn't. She did not know the name of one person who had written a screenplay for a movie. Directors, perhaps, but not a screenwriter. She was racking her brain. Okay, yeah, we're going to meet the man. Maybe we should stop and pick up some wine or something. No, we're not stopping. Kellogg looked at his smartphone. Bad idea while driving, to be sure, but he hated letting it talk to him out loud about directions, so there you go and he noticed they were coming up on McGee's exit. They had been driving across the desert for hours, and now, beyond the exit, all Kellogg saw was more desert. He said, Why would someone want to live here? Warm weather? Being from Mankato, Minnesota, Emily Plinko could imagine the allure of this for about a month, but then she'd get bored. Truth was, she really loved the snow and beauty of her cold Minnesota winters, this made her almost as crazy as a Canadian, but a few hundred miles less so. For San Francisco and Kellogg, however, she'd leave her winters behind forever. If you could live anywhere, like a writer can, he said, just why? That's all I'm asking. Neither of them said anything else. They got off the highway and passed a gas station, a string of Mexican restaurants, and chain fast food places, and then a series of gated communities. At the edge of what appeared to be civilization, just before coming to wide-open, empty desert, they came to the last gated community on the last street. This was Coral Gables. Even just looking at the walls outside, Kellogg felt the temperature around them drop five degrees. Green grass and pink flowers grew all along the base of the walls for as far as he could see. They drove up to a gate and saw a black man sitting in a small house watching TV. He opened the door 
letting out a gentle and alluring breeze of air conditioning. We're here to see Bainbridge McGee. The black man in the small house yelled, Yes, the captain. Yes, indeed. I am happy to announce a visitor for the captain. Kellogg watched the man for what he would do next. We might be on a list, he said finally. Yes, indeed, the list. Inside the small house, the guard reached for his clipboard and fingered down the first page. Name? Artemis Kellogg. Yes, sir. Says right here you are expected. He's expecting you. The guard smiled an impossibly wide and bright smile. Please go in. He opened the wide, clean, automatic metal gate. Kellogg drove forward. His smartphone told him to go left on Dogleg Drive. When Artemis Kellogg and Emily Plinko had just reached Interstate 10, about an hour west of La Quinta, Bainbridge McGee was putting the finishing touches on the falling people. He thought for a while about whom to dedicate the book to, considering Kurt Vonnegut, his father, and even Don DeLillo. He even considered Laszlo Zoltan Nagy, who he felt sure would lose his chance at the Grand Master Award as a result of the book, but finally decided that he wasn't ready to write the dedication yet. He knew the proper recipient of this honor would reveal him or herself eventually. The next thing he did was really quite crazy. It was an artifact of old-school ways and means of writing. He printed out his book. Not only did this add to the ongoing consumption and murder of trees worldwide, so it goes, but it gave him something big and heavy to pass along to Kellogg instead of a sleek little lightweight item like if he just uploaded the book to a Kindle Paperwhite. He didn't know how to do that. Something about plugging his Kindle into his computer and formatting the file made this too complicated of a process. To be fair, it really wasn't that easy to figure out. It could have been easier. The final page of The Falling People came spinning out of McGee's laser printer just as he heard a car pull up outside. He knew immediately this would be Artemis Kellogg. As he got out of the car, Artemis Kellogg felt sure he should not have worn shorts. He had on sneakers and high black socks and cargo shorts that he liked to wear for camping. This was not how he wanted to appear as a writer. I should, he started, and then the garage door began to rumble its way up at the front of their Taurus. Before he knew it, a very red-faced and shorts-wearing brick of a man strode forward out of the garage with his hand out in greeting. This was the great writer, Bainbridge McGee. Welcome, he boomed. Welcome down to the desert. I'm glad you've come. This was the moment McGee noticed the presence of Emily Plinko. She stood beside the Taurus, impossibly making it look even shorter than Kellogg did, dwarfing the car, really, running her fingers through the fine hair behind her ear. Unwashed and rumpled from camping, she appeared even more beautiful than in her showered and cafe-ready state. She smiled widely at McGee. All three of them had conflicting thunderbolts of thought pop into their heads at that moment. Bainbridge McGee thought, I hope I fuck her. Artemis Kellogg thought, I hope he doesn't fuck her. Emily Plinko thought, The novel is definitely a dead art form. So it goes. McGee welcomed them inside, offered libations and iced tea mixed with lemonade, and showed them into his living room, where they all sat down on a wide, spacious couch set across from a non-working fireplace. Above that, mounted high on the wall over his mantle, was McGee's gigantic TV. 
the TV was off. Such was the life of a great writer. I'm so glad you've come, McGee said. Then he appeared enlivened. We're going to show those motherfuckers on the committee how awesome the great Vonnegut rolls, aren't we? Right? He slapped Kellogg on the leg. Yes, sir. Fuck that Calcano and his hungry Hungarian handballer. Kellogg laughed uncomfortably. This was a bad time to remember reading somewhere in the committee handouts that committee members were not supposed to fraternize with one another prior to or outside of sanctioned meetings. Not a good time to remember this, but remember it is what he did. He laughed uncomfortably, knowing he had let his own ambitions as a writer get in the way of being a champion committee member. Then he came to his senses and reassured himself that his life's work would make up for any failings with regard to this committee. I'm very happy to be here, he said. At just this moment, Sandy Sonnenfeld strode in from the patio, fresh from McGee's hot tub, wearing a new thong bikini that McGee had just bought her from Pacific Sunwear, dripping warm water onto his tiles and rug. Kellogg felt a great weight lift from his shoulders. He placed his hand possessively on Emily Plinko's knee, resting assured that this cougar was certainly here to cock-block the great writer from his girlfriend. Hi there, he said. McGee had forgotten that Sandy Sonnenfeld was on his patio. She had slept over again, which he had also forgotten. The sight of her in a bikini made his penis start to engorge with blood. He handled all of this most gracefully, however, introducing Sandy all around, remembering Emily Plinko's name, and not even mentioning the water dripping on his rug. Hope you brought your bathing suits, he said, or didn't. He laughed an odd laugh then to Kellogg, and not to Sandy as well, but it was really rather harmless. No one would be getting naked outside on his patio that day, not in the swimming pool or in the hot tub either. Later, feathers unruffled and concerns calmed, they sat on thickly pillowed reclining lawn chairs out on the patio drinking Arnold Palmer's and enjoying the sun. McGee had activated his misters, and the air around them felt perfectly humidified by a fine, cool mist. Very refreshing. Golfers golfed before them, passing across their view from left to right as they made their way down the 16th fairway and toward the green. McGee waved to them on occasion. The woman got into a nuanced and energetic debate about the state of third world politics and what role the United States should play in it. Very amicably they got into this, mind you. No heated political debates allowed here in Coral Gables, not over Arnold Palmer's just mutual political enjoyment through conversation. This was actually a thing. It was as the woman reached their most engaged that McGee finally cut through the small talk about driving a Taurus, golf, and even the committee to say exactly what Kellogg had been waiting to hear. So, he said, you want to be a writer? Yes, sir, Mr. McGee. Bainbridge, sir. McGee had insisted Kellogg call him that. I do. McGee placed his hand reassuringly on Kellogg's wrist. Please, just call me B.B. Kellogg smiled. He had once read in a Paris Review interview that McGee only let his closest friends and established writers call him that. He said, Thank you, B.B. What he asked then was exactly what he had coached himself endlessly not to ask, what he had promised his innermost person he would not ask the great writer— he knew Emily Plinko's reassurance and his own personal confidence should be all he would ever need. Well, 
fees and coffee. He knew these could be all the world might offer him, and that he was lucky to have them. Nevertheless, this is what he said. Do you think I've got a shot at it? My boy, McGee said. Oh, my boy. He gestured to the golf course in front of him, the line of palm trees down its center, and the clear blue skies beyond. Above the sky were his misters, and the patios overhang protecting them perfectly from the harsh rays of the sun. Allow the universe to have its mysteries and to gradually reveal our places in it. Here you are today, with me, under a beautiful sky, and we are lucky. We can afford to drink these Arnold Palmers, and we don't have to fight or work or fear the ills of the country around us. We have a level of safety that others would desire. These are all wonderful things. Listen, he said. You have your fears and I have mine. They'll never leave you fully because they're a part of you. Embrace them. Without fear, you would never know calm or happiness. He took a long drink of his Arnold Palmer, then put a lemon wedge between his teeth and chewed, sucking it dry. What can I tell you? What assurance can I give? Have you read the books of Bokanon? No, Kellogg lied. He had read two of them, but didn't want to admit it. Good, McGee said. Don't. They're drivel. Mostly lies. So is all religion. Look at the sky, though. See what that looks like? You can believe in that shade of blue, my brother. That color, that is real. Are you with me? McGee peered deeply into Kellogg's eyes, revealing himself in a way Kellogg had never expected. Kellogg nodded. He had no idea what McGee was saying, but he would never admit to that either. Whatever he was supposed to understand, he would, he understood, and the rest he would just try to remember. This is it, McGee said, then clinked his glass against Kellogg's and sat far back into the green cushion of his recliner. This and golf, he laughed. Then he slapped himself on the knee and stood right up. I'm hungry, he boomed. Let's go have lunch. To the club! McGee loaded them all onto a golf cart he kept hidden behind the shrubs and drove them alongside the course to the club. When they arrived, Big Wynn was holding court to a gathering of golfers, male and female, telling them the perspectives and ideas behind his newfound putting success. He fairly glowed with confidence. His listeners paid close attention, as fans of any famous athlete would. His penis was engorged with blood. At home, his wife was resting on their bed watching television, experiencing a pleasant exhaustion due to the most satisfying week of sexual intercourse in her life. McGee parked and waved to Big Win as he guided the ladies toward a table outside. Big Win tipped his cap and kept talking about putting. Have the hamburger, McGee told Kellogg. It's the best in the desert. Kellogg slid Emily Plinko's chair into the table beneath her most politely. Then he sat down himself. Sandy Sonnenfeld had slipped on a robe before leaving, and her fine, artificially enhanced breasts were now hidden from view. That wonderful view was temporarily dead to them. So it goes. When the waiter arrived, Kellogg agreed to try the burger, but opted for a salad instead of the french fries. He leaned back and patted his slight stomach. Got to watch my weight, you know. Working toward those washboard abs. It was a joke. Everyone else at the table nodded guiltily. 
They knew they were not steering their lives toward washboard abs with sufficient urgency. Sure, Sandy had a great body, of course, but she lacked the muscle tone to have a true washboard. Emily Plinko was getting soft. She was starting to lose hers. So it goes. They each needed to add 130 crunches and 50 leg lifts to their daily routine to accomplish this. And so on. All four of our fine friends had truly exceptional, wonderful, happy, healthy bodies. They had nothing to worry about in the abs department, in truth. Still, McGee ordered the Asian chicken salad, and each of the ladies thought about having a salad, but then opted for the hamburger. They loved hamburgers, which was a wonderful trait for them to have. Kellogg ordered coffee. Over lunch, they made friends of one another, sitting in the sun or the shade as they desired and enjoying the food. The club did that trick where the food came out unbelievably fast that no one could yet understand, and Big Wynn finally ended his lecture and trotted off to the locker room to read the newspaper naked. The waiters and golfers were all very friendly. Truly, there was nothing wrong with the world inside the Coral Gables gated community and at its club. And you know what? In 2020, that's still kind of true. Yeah, that's right. Even with some of the craziness going on, much of the craziness going on, some folks are still doing just fine. Wearing masks, not wearing masks, eating lobster, red lobster, black lobster, white lobster, whatever. You name it. Purple lobster. In any case, happy to go back and put these two chapters together for you. Time machine status. Really appreciate you listening. Hope you're doing well. And chapter... 27 and 28, episode 14, will be right on the heels of this. We'll get you the rest of the content of this book in 2020, so stay tuned. This will be your reward for making it through this crazy year, and I'm happy to bring it to you. Your boy, Seth Harwood, thanking you for your support. This is a presentation from your boy, Seth Harwood. That's right, S-E-T-H-H-A-R-W-O-O-D, coming to you here from Massachusetts, East Hampton, during the Corona COVID 2020. That's right, your boy, kicking it to you live and direct, fresh off the mic, SethHarwood.com, Patreon.com slash SethHarwood, Patreon, all the places. Check it out. Keep it locked.